When an athlete injures his ankle and limps from the field, few question the injury or perhaps how long it takes to heal before a safe return. Yet when an athlete steps away to address their personal mental health concerns, we often question it, which leads to misunderstandings. Hello and welcome to the Youth Sports Safety Update, produced by the Jacksonville Sports Medicine Program or JSMP here in Jacksonville, Florida. JSMP is a nonprofit advocacy and prevention program that is dedicated to youth sports safety through awareness, advocacy, and prevention. Your host today is Jim Mackey, consultant to JSMP and a seasoned certified athletic trainer. Please subscribe to our podcast and check out our website at jaxsmp.com for more information about youth sports safety. Today we have a special guest in the field of mental health and sports psychology. He is a seasoned sports psychologist with extensive experience at Notre Dame University and on the professional level of sports with Jacksonville Jaguars. Please welcome Dr. Miguel or Mick Franco. Hello, Dr. Franco. Welcome. Thank you, Jim, for having me. All right. Well, let's get right into this. You know, this past year, uh, COVID uh, or not, uh, athletes such as gymnast Simone Biles, basketball's Kevin Love, and women's tennis Naomi Osaka publicly addressed their own issues of mental health. What's changed in the landscape that's brought these things to light, in your opinion? I think that one of the things that has happened is that we have actually been able to challenge certain mindsets that used to be there for the parents of young athletes today. You know, mindsets that have embedded in them axioms like, you know, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. Winners never quit. Quitters never win, which basically implies that when it's time to compete, you're a machine. You're not a human being. So that whenever it is that your humanity decides that it wants to make its presence felt, what we learn to do is suppress that stuff because we feel like it is not going to be something that can help us be successful. So to the extent that we start treating ourselves like machines instead of what we are, human beings with some talent, then what ends up happening is that we will lose touch with our humanity. And one of the telltale signs that we're losing touch with our humanity is that we don't allow ourselves to feel our feelings which means that we don't allow ourselves to acknowledge that we're hurting. And to the extent that there are actions like when the going gets tough, the tough get going, winners never quit. Now you don't ask for help. I think that that has changed. I think that it has now become cool to say that, wow, my team has a sports psychologist. And you can actually use that as a recruiting tool in college because kids are becoming sophisticated enough that they realize if you truly are about my comprehensive well-being, you will have an expert on hand to help me with those issues too. But I just I think that the culture has just changed slowly. And one of the ways that we can tell is we don't hear kids say things like when the going gets tough, the tough get going. Winners never quit, quit. That's not stuff we hear anymore. That's actually a good sign. Yeah, that's good. And because mental health is not always a a necessarily visible injury. Things like depression and anxiety are not things that you see on an X-ray or an MRI. So how do we help to identify and and address them in people and young athletes, especially today? Well, I'll tell you that one of the ways in which your humanity is going to let you know that you're not a machine is that it's going to send you messengers of your humanity. And the messengers are going to end up coming in behaviors that we come to call symptoms. So what you're going to be looking at is someone who's sending you signals that the anxiety is getting the better of them. And in an athlete, the way that the athlete lets you know that the anxiety is getting the better of them is that they start experiencing performance anxiety. They become so jittery that they don't perform as well as they should, or they get stage fright and will disengage from competition. So there are ways in which 
signals would be emitted from that athlete. You just need to decode those signals as an alert that something needs to be done, not an alarm that something bad is going on. Because if when any young athlete sends out an alert that there's something that's bothering them, if what you do is treat it as though it's an alarm, they are then going to become afraid to send out that signal or to ask for help. So what we need to do is literally keep an eye on this. Is it someone who's playing the game with a sense of wonder or is it someone who's playing the game with a sense of careful? I believe that we were meant to play games because it's a wonderful experience. It's full of wonder, innocent curiosity that propels us to explore, to see how well can I control my environment right now? I mean, that's, that's games, that's sport, that's play. It's supposed to be wonderful. But when you're afraid that failure lurks because rejection will come right behind it, now you're no longer playing with a sense of wonder. You're not playing with an innocent curiosity. You're not flowing. You're grinding. And athletes will give you the tells. And one of the ways that the athlete will give you the tell is that they will dominate in practice. They'll be fantastic in practice because rejection doesn't loom in practice. But when the lights get bright and the audience's opinion of you matters, oh, now all of a sudden rejection enters the equation. Fear of failure dominates. And now you've got some, someone who is deliberate in everything they say and do. And so instead of letting themselves be unconsciously competent, letting themselves do that, which comes naturally to them, they become deliberate about each and every step. And in time, they will be sending out signals that they're really unhappy, playing a game that they once used to love. I, I would see this all the time at Notre Dame with our athletes going to between the first semester to the second semester of their freshman year. They used to love because they used to dominate, but now they graduated into a world where the ratio of success to failure isn't what it used to be. And now they're dealing with a tremendous amount of, of, of frustration and anxiety because they have to go home for the Christmas holidays and explain why it is that they're not the dominating force that they've always been, that somehow they start to feel like they're either the imposter or the bust recruit. And most of that is just about self-esteem that gets compromised along the way. So what, what are you seeing in your practice that would help us to have better, we're hearing the word empathy, and you've stated some of the things about recognition uh, to help someone. So what are some of those things that would help us to improve our empathy and our recognition uh, to help someone who may be addressing some mental health issues? Well, I think the first thing you got to do is make sure that you have self-awareness and self-compassion. And to the extent that you recognize that your own house is clean, that's step number one. So once that's there, it's about how are you going to be able to decode from the signals that someone is encoding that they are hurting. Think about what compassion is. Something has to get your attention. While it gets your attention, because out of sight is out of mind, how can you have compassion for something that you don't even have in your environment or that you don't even know exists? Step number one with compassion is that you need to be aware, okay? There's an entity in front of you that's got your attention. And when it gets your attention, you realize there's suffering there. There's plight there. And now their plight moves you. It emotionally resonates inside you, not in a positive way because you're not a sadist, but in a negative way that the very empathy that you're feeling is because you're being moved emotionally in a negative way because you're in the presence of someone who's hurting. And once you recognize that they're hurting, you have a choice. You can either emotionally regulate yourself by ignoring them, walking away, minimizing or giving trite answers to them. Or what you can do is let your empathy, let your empathy knock on the door of your compassion so that your compassion can animate what behavior do you have inside you? That if you say or do that to the person who's suffering, A, you might be able to eliminate their suffering, B, you might be able to alleviate their suffering, or at the very least, if you can't eliminate or alleviate, they can feel that you cared enough to try. And so it's about simply acknowledging, just acknowledge, hey, I can tell that things right now for you 
aren't what they once were. There was a time when you used to be X, Y, Z. And now I'm seeing you doing this ABC. Hey, what's going on and what can I do for you? Acknowledge that you see and experience their suffering so that they know that they're not alone in it. To me, the key piece is respect through acknowledgement. Remember the word respect, S-P-E-C-T, means to see. Re means to see again, okay? You, you, you've got to see the person twice, not only what's right in front of you, but the context in which that got to you in the first place. That's what we mean by respect, because without it, you can't have empathy. And without that, you're not having any compassion. And I'll argue that without self-respect, you can't have respect for others, empathy for others, and inevitably compassion for others. So I'm just saying clean your own house before you start giving people directions on how to clean theirs. So we talked about this a little earlier in a previous conversation, but what's the biggest difference you see between boys and girls and their mental health? Well, I'll argue that what will happen with boys, the way that their mental health will send out a signal that they're in trouble is that their behavior will be pretty active. They will do something that more than likely will border on something that is either antisocial or something that's inappropriate. Their, their behavior will be the tell. With girls, it's going to be more about expressing their feelings. And sometimes they're going to express those feelings non-verbally and sometimes verbally. But one of the reasons why we end up seeing these kinds of responses from girl and boy athletes is that the biggest difference between girl and boy athletes is that girls need to know the answer to the question why. Girls need to know why. Boys learn along the way that the question why is an insubordinate question. So boys don't ask why. And if boys don't ask why, they don't get the information that they need. Don't get the information you need, you're going to end up in a hurting place. And now hurt people hurt people and they start to act out. When you give girls the answer to why, it allows them to be able to sit with it, not only cognitively, but emotionally. And it allows them to be able to then ask the question, why not? I'm just saying we socialize girls to be more emotionally intelligent than we socialize boys. And I think that sport, when you have the right supervision, can make it so that gender doesn't matter. We're going to socialize them to become full human beings instead of just men in full or women in full. Because we live in a society that really wants to encourage us to raise boys to become men in full and girls to become women in full, as opposed to raising us to become full human beings. We'll get a whole lot farther that way and have a whole lot more fun playing sports that way. That's a great quote you gave there uh, just a minute ago that hurt people hurt people. And I learned at a, a workshop a week or so ago that healed people help heal other people. And so as we absolutely know where that hurt comes from, identify it, uh, recognize it, acknowledge it, and then um, do whatever we need to do. I don't want to get off on a tangent here, but, you know, forgive and move forward best we can and then get to where we can help other people heal in the same process and that. So uh, that's a, that's a, a, a great contrast between the boys and the girls. Yeah. And, and you know what? Sport is a forum that allows us to educate kids to maintain that sense of innocent curiosity, that sense of wonder, that sense of respect for self and others. I know that for me, having played football in college, I didn't realize how much bias I had inside me about people different from me than when I went to college and I was surrounded by my black brothers, my African-American brothers. And it was only when I was able to actually bleed, sweat, cry alongside them that I realized, oh my gosh, they're different from me, but they're human beings like me. Nothing changed me 
like the experience of being thrown into a diverse, a diverse environment where I experienced their compassion for me, because that's what I got from them. The compassion I got from them was I wasn't as good as they were, but they valued how much I was willing to sacrifice so that they could get better. And so I'm just saying sport opens up opportunities that prepare us so that we can go live in the world as full human beings. But all of that is predicated on leadership that knows what they're doing. Leadership that doesn't know what they're doing, they misguide. They misguide. And so we need to make sure that we have a way of evaluating whether or not the leadership knows what it's doing. It's just that simple. That's a great point. And uh, you and I are from that generation. Uh, when I first became a student athletic trainer, uh, I had come from a very protected Southern um, segregated background. And my exposure in college athletics was the beginnings of a very integrated uh, system. And uh, these are some of my best friends to this day. And uh, those relationships, um, although as a student athletic trainer providing care uh, for these African-American athletes, um, it just gave me a new level of compassion. And I, and I was taught very early on of, of how to treat people in a compassionate manner and to, um, they don't really, the phrase is, they don't really care how much you know until they know how much you care. And uh, absolutely, those absolutely. are absolute and important things there. So um, I think we talked about, too, that boys tend to use their masculinity to create an identity uh, to prove themselves in sports. Um, why do you think this is uh, so? And, and would you say it's beneficial or can it be harmful? There was a book written called The Season of Life. The author's last name was Marx. And it's a story about um, a very successful professional football coach who became the head coach of a high school team in Baltimore. Anyway, in that book, they talk about how it is that boys end up doing sport as a means by which to do masculinity. And they talked about something called the three B's. Well, I added seven to them. Okay, so I want to give credit where credit is due. This, this, the, the 10 B's of masculinity. This is the way that boys learn to do masculinity for one reason only to not get rejected. We just don't want to get rejected. And so chronologically, the first B that boys turn to as a means by which to make sure that they don't get rejected is boys will turn to ballparks because ballparks are a first place. If it's a sandlot ballpark, guess what? In that sandlot ballpark, someone's doing the choosing. Whoever's doing the choosing, they're on top. Somebody's getting picked next. They're valuable too. Someone's getting picked last. Someone's not getting picked at all. That speaks to patriarchy. Patriarchy is men rule and that we keep a chart on who's on top and who's at the bottom. And the way in which boys get a sense of how patriarchy works at first is, believe it or not, through ballparks. In organized sport, organized sport is replete with words that speak to hierarchies. First string, second string, third string, starter, backup, division one, division two, division. It's all about that. Ballparks. Boys learn that a way of doing masculinity and a way to make sure that you can keep them being rejected is you better make sure that you adhere to the rules of masculinity. And the rules of masculinity are simple. Love all that is manly and disdain all that isn't, which is where you inevitably see misogyny, the hatred of women, and its cousin, homophobia. But it's because the very first commandment of the religion of masculinity is love and revere all that is masculine. And the second one is disdain and distrust all that isn't. And again, misogyny and homophobia are the byproducts of that. Ballparks. Very quickly, here are the 10 Bs. First is ballparks, then it's bad words. You want to use bad words so that no one ever confuses you for a mama's boy. Because a mama's boy, well, is just a little too effeminate. And then the next B is bases. The way that boys learn to steal bases from girls so that no one ever thinks 
that you are anything but straight. And then you're going to banter about that in a locker room where you better believe that when you banter, it's going to be about your latest athletic or sexual exploit. And if there's any boy in the room that appears to be showing too much empathy for anybody else, he's going to be the target of something called dominance bonding. Boys learn to bond with each other by selecting someone to dominate. And the locker room is the perfect Petri dish for horrors to occur. The next B, which catches us around what? Junior bench press. It's amazing how boys between the ages of 13 and 14 know what other boys can bench press. For, for By the time that you get to be, say, 13, 14, if you do not have sport as a means by which to do your masculinity, what will end up happening is that you have to now innovate. You become an entrepreneur. Most male adolescent youth crime is not boys doing sociopathy. It's boys doing masculinity because sport was taken away from them. And if you actually go into juvenile detention centers, you're going to find that there are two body types overrepresented within that demographic. Boys that are heavy and boys that are scrawny, giving us the impression that these are the way that boys who are neglected look like. That's a spurious correlation. The boys who are better physically fit, they run faster, they jump higher, the cops can't catch them. That's what that's all about. So the next B is what I call beat. Boys who don't have sport anymore, they're going to turn to the arts. And the B that I'm talking about is in music. Music that has a heavy beat and words that beat down on women and gay people. Think about this. You're at a red light. You're waiting. And here it comes right alongside you. And the next thing that comes out of there are, are words that are, let's just say, unkind to women and gay people. Who's likely to be driving that car? A guy or a girl? I'm just saying. So again, now we're talking about beat. The next one is buzz. How much booze can you put into your system compared to the other guy? And if you can outpoison him, somehow you're the winner. We're going to play games there too. Beer pong, quarters, buzz. The next B is badass. Who's the guy who's going to show he could care less about the consequences? He's going to make sure he doesn't get rejected because he's going to be the entertainer that's going to play chicken with the train. He's going to be the guy that plays Russian roulette at the same time. He's going to be the badass. Every generation has a movie that venerates badassism. You and I had a movie called Animal House. right? In the recent few years, there was the jackass movies, and now they're coming up with a new jackass movie. And it's all about this. It's all about who, because one man's, Badass is another man's jackass, okay? The next B is bling. It's the way in which boys figure out who's got the money. And, and, and for the first time, because up until now, it's been brawn over brains. And now brain starts to gain on you when you're in high school. And the question is, are you going to go to college? Yes or no? Are you going to go to the community college or are you going to go into the Ivy Leagues? If you're in sport, are you going to play sport? Okay, division three, division two, really how much money we're constantly ranking. Because the higher you are, the less likely you are to be rejected. And then the last B, which is what we deal with at the age of 20, 22, it's called benevolent sexism. There are women you marry and women you don't. The ones that you marry, you put on a pedestal. And while she's on a pedestal, notice there's not much room to move on a pedestal. But while she's on the pedestal and you're using your chivalry and your gift of gab to entertain her, she's not recognizing that perhaps you're trying to kick the legs out from underneath the pedestal. And now she's a fallen woman and is no longer a candidate for hand in marriage. She's a candidate for other things. Now, I offer this to you because these 10 Bs are literally the script that society gives boys. And if you can adhere to this script, you're not going to get rejected. And the very first one is ballparks. How powerful is this stuff? You can't go into a weekend where you don't turn on the TV, where there will be some sport on the TV, where what you end up seeing is the veneration of masculinity. If you want to see something that's unique, it's the Olympics but they only happen once every four years, once every four years. 
So there's so much embedded in why it is that boys do sport. It's really not so much because we love sport. It's a way of making sure that we don't get rejected because it's all about not getting rejected. Well, we just went through National Signing Day yesterday for many of the college sports and that. And uh, we live in an age of entitlement in sports, name, and name, image, and likeness, and social media and the me uh, for any generation uh, is the focus. So how, do, how does this all influence, you, can't, you covered it in a lot of the bees there, but how does this influence our mental health? Or is this just a lot of toxicity that we keep feeding into our lives that uh, just get us totally uh, sideways? Think about this. If all of us want to do everything we can to avoid rejection, the moment that you realize that you as an entertainer in a sport can avoid rejection, now you believe that your worth is conditioned upon and contingent upon avoiding rejection. One of the ways that you can demonstrate that you are not going to be rejected is if you make it into that incredibly rare group of people called college athlete that has to sign because money is changing hands. I am just saying for those young people who up until now, the ratio of success to failure on the field has been much heavier on the side of success. Obviously, they're getting grant and aid now to play at the intercollegiate level. They're not going to graduate into a world where everybody is every bit as good as they are and some are even better, and most have more experience. Guess what? The ratio of success to failure is now going to be much, much more on the failure side than ever before. And if you have conditions of worth, you now are feeling like a failure. Why? Because you're no longer living up to the expectations that kept rejection at bay. So I'm just saying that the way that the mental health gets affected is if you believe that your worth is a human being, now your self-esteem is compromised. If you believe that your self-esteem now is predicated on how others view you, how others laud you, how others evaluate you, then you need to do everything you can to do what? Make sure that they get the image of you that will keep you from getting rejected. And so really what's going on is that you recognize grief is right around the corner. Grief is the most difficult emotional work human beings ever do. We experience anxiety when we think that grief might be lurking. The prospect of grief can send us into an anxious tizzy. And so I'm saying what we've got here are young people who have found the conduit to keep rejection at bay, and then they graduate into a world where now they're going to see failure like they've never seen before. And if they don't have the ego strength, you better believe here comes either an adjustment disorder with anxiety or generalized anxiety or phobias, performance anxiety, this is how it happens. And it's because you've got young people who believe that their worth on this planet is contingent on how well they're able to entertain you. And you know what? That's, that's something that works at a young age. Well, let me tell you something. You've got young men who are playing in the professional ranks. They believe that their worth as a human being depends on how they perform every night. And fear of failure runs their lives. Runs their lives. And that will inevitably lead to tremendous, tremendous trouble. Why? Because the more stress you're under, the greater the likelihood that you're going to get injured. The research bears that out. And what we know is that the intermediating variable between stress and injury, believe it or not, is social support. Do you have people in your life who love you and will be there for you and will discipline you with love and educate you with discipline and show compassion where it's warranted? It's always going to be about relationships where you can discern that this person loves me unconditionally. Many athletes do not believe that. They have evidence to the contrary. And so it creates a tremendous amount of, let's just say, 
mental discomfort. Right. That's a big challenge. Um, I, we've all been around the groupies and the people that I call them hanger owners and, uh, people have got to make wise decisions to pick, uh, positive relationships, not toxic ones. Um, people that are not after getting something from you, but can offer something in a positive nature to, to that relationship, be it, uh, uh positivity, encouragement, uh, the right kind of people to hang around, if I can say that and that. Well, uh, let's switch bases here just a little bit. Uh, some some sports cultures are not really keen on the term feelings, and that may equate with they're being soft. And so what are some of the strategies that, that anyone can take um, to help someone who may fear opening up about their issues or feelings? You know, if I if I say something, I'm going to I may be perceived as soft and uh uh, some sport cultures promote that even more than others, especially, I'd say, the collision sports, the masculine um, uh, expression sports, if I may use that term. Absolutely. Just- yeah, let, 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 me sh- let me share with you where my thought goes. Let's take the word intelligence, okay, and let's define it as a system of abilities. So there are different systems of abilities. One system of ability is cognitive intelligence. And we can measure that through IQ tests, ACTs, SAT scores, uh, you know, GPAs. That's a way of measuring cognitive intelligence. That is power. Another way of measuring intelligence is physical intelligence. Just like some brains can do things that other brains can't, some bodies can do things that other bodies can't. Those that can are experienced more powerful. So in those cultures where power is something that's highly valued, they need to understand that emotional intelligence is what sets apart the champion from everybody else. And it's your ability to know how to use your emotions because your emotions are simply information. They are alerts. They're not alarms. They are signals. They're messengers. The moment that you learn that your emotions are not a sign of weakness, they're a sign of power. It's the power that human beings have to be able to detect that they're in a place that right now is either welcoming or threatening. That's simply information. To the extent that you know how to use that information, you can make the decisions that serve you well, and now you're even more empowered. To not use emotional intelligence resources because culture says it's a sign of weakness really is the way in which you set somebody to set somebody up to not be as fully powerful as you can possibly be. That's why I equate emotional intelligence with a superpower. You just have to know, like, but it's like nuclear energy. If you do not harness it, it's going to lead to a meltdown. you got to know how to discipline that power. And when it does not get the attention that it deserves because we think that it's something to ignore, you just created a nuclear reactor without any kind of discipline. Get ready for meltdowns. Get ready for toxicity. That's why when we discipline people, when it comes to issues of emotional intelligence, they have the power to light up the world in a beautiful way. But left unattended, I'm telling you, it's a nuclear reactor left unattended. There will be a meltdown. And inevitably, it's going to be bad for everyone that comes anywhere near that nuclear reactor. So let's talk a little bit about the pediatric and adolescent population. Uh, Wolfson's Children's Hospital, and it's a national program, has the On Our Sleeves program. And that um, a separate doctor, Dr. Victor Hong, has stated that younger people today are more open and less stigma driven when it comes to discussing symptoms they're experiencing. But at the same time, they have more pressure on them than previous athletes. Would you agree, disagree with that? Or how, how, how do we help these kids deal with the deal with the pressure? 
uh, let me share with you how powerful what you just said is. There is literally now a term called FOMOphobia. FOMOphobia, the fear of missing out phobia. We are living in a time where literally young people have satellites in their pockets. They're not phones. These are satellites that give them access to anything and everything. And we human beings are wired to attach. It's in our nature to attach. So guess what? We need to feel connected. That's why when, when especially adolescents, when they lose their phones, they have anxiety responses beyond anything that does. And, and, and we that never had cell phones when we were younger don't understand what this is all about. And it's because we just took away their ability to feel attached. Now, that attachment means that you're being evaluated either in a positive light or in a negative light. And so I think that through social media, a lot has been done to destigmatize issues of mental health. But that is, again, a, a, a two-sided coin. That which can educate you in a positive way can also expose you to horrors. Like, for example, rejection that awaits on the other side. So I'm just saying that the biggest difference today is the impact of technology, specifically how social media gives kids a reason to believe that they are attached in a healthy way as long as they have a phone on them, which is really a satellite to what? To the world. And they do not want to be disconnected. That is so scary to them. Rejection is so linked to disconnected that now there's something called fear of missing out phobia, phobia. And it is very, very real. I always, when I work with parents who say, I'm going to take their phone away, I say, then we're done. If you're going to take your kid's phone away, I'm out. I can't help them. I can't believe you're saying that, Dr. Franco. Take the apps of the phone away. Take the apps. Tell them this app is gone. This app is gone. This app is gone. But the moment you take the phone away, you need to understand what you just did. You just told your kid that you don't care about their way of staying attached to others. And you better believe they're going to ask out about that. That's amazing. I, I've used the term uh, digital pacifier for a telephone because it's really it is a connection that, um, you know, a, a baby a lot of times give me that pacifier. But it's it's not that we're babies now, but we have to look at it. And it's amazing when we look at and see the amount of time that we stay connected, uh, be it. Uh, on social media, on messaging, on our phones, or whatever, and it uh, it does it does create a phobia. So I, I think that's a great idea to to take the apps away, not the not the phone the itself, the phone. because that's the way we connect with people these days. Absolutely, that. and we are we're human beings. Human beings are born wired to attach. If you want to get a sense of how, the first thing the doctors do is they check our reflexes, and what do all our reflexes aim at doing? They aim at getting us to attach. Every single reflex that doctors test us for to make sure that we're healthy at birth aim at giving signals that this is a human being equipped to attach. We're wired to attach. And the opposite of attach is not detach. The opposite of attach is rejection. And that's why we spend every waking moment of every waking day doing the best we can to keep rejection at bay. And athletes find out how to do that. If I can score touchdowns, if I can hit home runs, if I can make great catches, if I can shoot baskets, if I can do gymnastic stunts, I will keep rejection at bay. But now my worth is a human being is contingent on that. That's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of pressure. We think about the Olympics, you've got uh, three winners. And yet, if you're not at the gold, you're not the winner, you know, and it, it's amazing the amount of pressure there. There are three constructive ways that um, the uh, Honor Sleeves program gives to handle and deal with pressure and 
performance and mental health. And I'll give them real quickly. Be mindful, relax your body, and reframe your thoughts. And that goes into expansion. We'll put those in our show notes, the actual notes that, that we share there. But uh, Dr. Franco, this has been uh, tremendously helpful, uh, hopefully to our listeners. And we appreciate this. I think we could talk all day uh, about these. And uh, you certainly have a great deal of passion and experience uh, in this area. So thank you very much for, for being with us. We will put some resources in our show notes. Dr. Franco, thank you for being with us today. We appreciate all of your insights and uh, give, please give us one final thought. Thank you. Um, the way that children know that they are loved is that you enter their wonderful world of play and never look at your watch. The moment you enter the wonderful world of play in a child's life, they feel your love. The moment that they detect that you're looking at your watch, they sense that you're already thinking about something else. We need to make sure that we spend quality experience, not quality time. Not the same thing. Because you better believe a kid can figure that out. So it's about making sure that we allow ourselves to get lost in the wonder of our children when they play, for them to feel our love, not that we're keeping score or measuring how well they're doing during the game because it could turn into money someday. That, that, let, let's keep the wonder alive. That's what I'm, that, To me, that's the most important thing. Well, thank you very much. That's excellent advice. And again, we appreciate you uh, sharing uh, your time with us and uh, best wishes in your all your endeavors. Uh, and we do hope you've enjoyed today's episode of the Youth Sports Safety Update. We are dedicated to youth sports safety through awareness, advocacy, and prevention. Please share what you've learned and implement to make sports and those who participate safer. One way is to make sure your school or sports team is safely prepared is to have a certified licensed athletic trainer present. Please subscribe to our podcast, write a review, and search our website at jaxsmp.com. The Youth Sports Safety Update is produced by the Jacksonville Sports Medicine Program. Your host and producer today is Jim Mackey. Please join us again soon, and thank you very much.